This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. The Champions League last 16 kicks off with wins for Manchester City and Real Madrid. City had a little scare in Copenhagen, but in reality completely dominated almost from start to finish. Kevin De Bruyne scores one, sets up others. Even his tackles put teammates through on goal. Some... Finish from Bernardo, mind you. In Leipzig, Real ride their luck. The home side will be disappointed not to have got something from it. Brian Diaz in for Jude Bellingham with a brilliant solo goal. We'll discuss Chelsea's win at Selhurst Park on Monday night as the pressure mounts on Roy. And Big Sir Jim gets the all-clear to own a decent chunk of Manchester United. In the EFL, nine brackets, nine goals for Mansfield. More than 80 in Leagues 1 and 2 last night. While Leicester cruise on and there's a big win for Leeds that takes them above Southampton, who lose for the first time in months. All that, plus how to differentiate West Ham keepers. Your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. <laughs> Chortling away at that last bit. Barry Glendening, welcome. Oh, hello, Max. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you, my love. Uh, Mark Langdon from the Racing Post, hello. Hi, Max. And hello, Lars Sivertson. Good morning, Max. Uh, let's start then in Copenhagen. Um, uh, Copenhagen 1, Manchester City 3. Um, I mean, when the draw happened, Lars, Man City weren't in the best form. But, you know, that has changed since. And mm. Copenhagen hadn't played for two months before this fixture. And it showed, I guess. I mean, perhaps it would have been the same if Copenhagen had played through the winter. But at least they had that moment, right, where the park and just went wild and you just thought, oh, we've got a game here. Yeah, incredible finish by Matson because, you know, the ball came and coming across was actually bouncing a little bit. So getting a clean strike on it wasn't an obvious thing. And it was an incredible hit. But... No, you're right. Most of the rest of the game, it did unfortunately look like a a team from Scandinavia that hadn't played for two months and played proper games for two months coming up against the best team in the world. I mean, which is kind of what it was. Uh, I I think in the end, and I'm obviously looking at this from a very Nordic perspective, it it, it was a real showcase of what makes Manchester City so good. Uh, Because... FC Copenhagen does not want the game to look like this. Like They're not a team who wants to sit back and defend in a low block for 90 minutes of the game. It's not what they do. Uh, they want to try to play. They want to move the ball around. They just weren't able to because City's uh, press was so so efficient, so aggressive. And you, and I was always, again, I was watching I was watching FC Copenhagen much more closely than I was watching Man City here. And, and so many times... After immediately after they regained possession, they would lose it again within the first first pass or the second pass because City were so good at swarming them, never letting them settle. And then it, you spend so much of the game chasing. When you then get the ball, you don't have the energy, and your 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 shoulders are like yeah, you're all anxious and tight, and you no one's gotten into any kind of rhythm with the ball. And then you make a bad pass, and then City have the ball again for five minutes. You know, it it, it became that sort of game, and it's what City can do to you when they're at their best. And Nesico, sadly, were not able to deal with it, sadly, from my perspective, anyway. Yeah, I suppose that's interesting, isn't it, Mark, in the sense that, like, you look at someone like Burnley, like a team that have the ball the whole time, and they come up to the Premier League and don't have the ball, and you're suddenly like, oh. And then when you get the ball, you want to say, oh, give us a minute, lads. And City is so relentless. Yeah, that they are. And, I mean, I, I think it, it, it maybe shows that actually just how good City are. We... Some, we, we we maybe take it for granted, um, you know, quite often, and their games can feel quite boring in in some respects because of the way that they dominate opponents. But you know, Copenhagen did not play like this against Bayern Munich, for instance, and mm. were able to, and, and Bayern Munich are 
one of probably the two teams closest to um, to Manchester City in terms of winning the Champions League. So um, it was just um, one of them games for Copenhagen where they're just up against a team that is so much better than them that you can't play um, your normal style. And then when you're not used to playing in, in a different way, it's actually it's harder. You know, if they played like that every week, maybe it would have um, you know, been easier for them to kind of accept that they weren't going to have the ball and they... Um, sort of move to a back five um, in the second half to try to um, stem the tide, but yeah, it, it was um, the, the, the sort of difference in class was uh, pretty obvious from a very early stage. I mean, a worrying position, Barry, of coming to you with a Kevin De Bruyne's good, Phil Foden's good, isn't he? Um, I mean, I thought those De Bruyne's finish was just so wonderful, and Bernardo's as well. I mean, I don't. I mean, you can pick out whoever you want from that City side, but. It seems hard to see, especially that third goal kill. Feel like that kills this tie. It's almost hard to see who is going to beat them over two legs. I think the draw killed this tie. Um, FC Copenhagen earned their place in the last sixteen. Came out with a difficult group with Man U, Bayern Munich, Galatasaray, and then when they get drawn against City, uh, I don't think anyone gives them a hope in hell of laying a glove on them. They scored, but. They were comfortably beaten. Uh, City had 79% possession, 27 shots to four. Uh, Copenhagen's goalkeeper, Camille Grabera, was their man of the match. He pulled off some excellent saves to keep the score down and on paper at least give them a fighting chance going to Manchester. But I don't think anyone gives them a hope in hell of, of turning this tie around and there's absolutely no disgrace. I mean... Even if they had been playing regular football and competitive football, they might have put up a better showing. But as Lars pointed out, or you did, they they haven't played for two months. You just wonder with this, like in the UK anyway, this these uh, Champions League matches confined to TNT Sport, which I think an awful lot of people don't have because they can't afford it uh, or don't want it or for whatever reason. Um, you just wonder who, who's watching this game, you know, apart from City fans, who's interested? Because, the, the, uh, oh, Lar- well, Lars is, Lars has a vested interest, but uh, sorry, Lars was waving his hand there. The Scandinavians were hyped. I'm, I'm talking about in the UK, you know, uh, who's interested in watching this stroll in the park? But that's the way it is now. And an awful lot of these uh, around the 16 games do seem to have an air of predictability. Obviously, you, you're interested to see how will PSG go out this year, but otherwise, <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard to drum up much interest for this round of 16, I think. Yeah, I don't know what you think, Lars. I think there, there, is a, there is an interesting point that normally in the last 16, there is sort of one or two real standout ties between two heavyweights, and that, ha- that just hasn't transpired, which makes you think, well, the quarterfinals, if everything goes to plan... Like should be box office if that's the right word. Yeah, but but this is still the most extreme case of this. I mean, the, the, no matter who they were up against, you know, FC Copenhagen would have been the bottom seed of this group of the tournament, and the City would be the highest, you know, the the bookies' favorite to win the tournament. So so when those two are drawn together, yeah, the, you you get a game that can look like this. 
I'm a little bit again with my with my Danish uh, hat on. Uh, I'm, I'm it's fr- it is a bit frustrating that they drew Manchester City because I think they are a team as we saw in the group stage that could do something more. But but Man City are an awful team to play against. That's what their coach said after the game that the first twenty minutes they had a real shock by the tempo of the game. They just couldn't cope with it, and then they kind of grew into it a little bit. But yeah, no, they they, they weren't really able to do anything. And I, I think there are other ties in this uh, round that will be much more even than this, uh, even though you're right, we, we haven't had the two heavyweights uh, against each other. You know, the champions of Spain are playing the champions of Italy. It just turns out that Barcelona and Napoli are not as good as they were last <laughs> year. And that's not really the Champions League's fault or UEFA's fault. I mean, that would be a you know, mouth-watering uh, last 16 game. But I, I think it is true that we are missing some of the best teams in Europe. Liverpool, top of the Premier League at the moment, are in the Europa League. Bayer Leverkusen, five points clear in the Bundesliga. They're in uh, the Europa League as well. So I think, I mean, there is a, a slight quirk um, maybe to the last 16, even uh, the, the game that we've got this evening, PSG against Real Sociedad. When the draw was made, looked really exciting. Sociedad's form has, has tailed off, um, unfortunately, in, in the last month or so. So um, I think it is just one of those things of just getting back to the, the city point of view from their midfield and De Bruyne and Foden and Bernardo and Rodri and all of the quality they've got in there. I do think that that midfield is better without Alvarez um, in it. Um, and you know, he's been fantastic and carried the goal threat, um, you know, particularly when Haaland um, was out. But um, yeah, I, this is the balance of the city team that I like best. You can argue maybe about who plays on the left-hand side, um, but I, it did feel like you could counter attack against City slightly easier with Alvarez in there. Um, and when they've got De Bruyne in that position, he gives you the goal threat almost that Alvarez has got. And he can also do the, the other things as well. Um, you know, just a sensational footballer. Great hair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wonderful hair, of course. Um, we, we have talked actually, Mark, about whether Foden and De Bruyne, like, how do you. You know, because Foden was sort of playing where De Bruyne plays, and it feels like Foden's just kind of stayed there, and De Bruyne's come in, and it's fine. <laughs> Clearly, it's fine because they're both brilliant. Yeah, good footballers can can just play, and I I think that Foden is perfectly fine on on the wing, um, and it's nominally on on the wing. He's not being asked to do like what Doku um, does on on the other side when he plays. And quite often, him and De Bruyne can change anyway. De Bruyne likes to go wide, plays in that um, sort of right channel for City um, quite often anyway. So um, that just enables City to be fluid, doesn't it? If you've got Foden and De Bruyne, Bernardo can play in a number of positions uh, as well. So uh, that, yeah, that, that, that midfield, I think, just works with all of those good players because they're just really talented. Mm. It's a shame, Barry, for, for Grealish to, to get a start and then to have to go off. And then, it, but it does feel like Doku, Doku is a much more sort of incisive player. Like I, I think the future, when you're looking for interesting storylines to come out of City when they've won another game and all been great, I think that Doku-Grealish thing is quite interesting. Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, Doku is probably the player what Grealish was when he was at Villa before he went to... Manchester City and got reprogrammed. Um, there's no indication yet that uh, Pep has same plans for Doku, probably because he doesn't need to, because he has Grealish in reserve, and that seems to be where Grealish is now. And yeah, I, I'd say he's mega pissed off now. It looks like I think a groin strain or something. So 
presume he'll be out for three weeks or a month with that um, minimum. And yeah, he he had a chance to impress. We we know what he can do, but um, yeah, he will he will be fed up over that. Lars, you wrote a great piece about Copenhagen uh, for ESPN. You spoke to lots of people there, and I, one of the interesting things I I thought about was they have this amazing academy set up where they basically hoover up everyone in Denmark. And I wonder, you know, are they hated in Denmark by everyone else? <laughs> They are a little bit, not necessarily for that reason, but because they're kind of the big uh, showy team from the capital. And also they're quite a young team. They were only founded uh, in the the 90s, really. They were an amalgamation of two teams in the capital. And they've had, you know, finances behind them and the idea is to create the sort of uh, big uh, Danish capital club. And they've always been very ambitious. You know, we're going to be the best team in the country and we're going to be playing in Europe and all this sort of stuff. And that sort of level of sort of, naked ambition kind of annoys everyone else a little bit uh so so i mean i think that because of that there'll be some amongst fans of other clubs in denmark in particular there's not a huge amount of of, of affection and, and respect for fco i i guess but i think amongst the the general population i i I'm, maybe you can draw certain lines to what it was like in in norway again when we had rosenberg playing well in in europe a lot of people in the country thought it was exciting to see a Norwegian team at a great stage. But if you support their rivals, it's not amazing to see that Champions League money ticking into their bank account uh, fairly regularly because mm. it makes it even harder to compete against them domestically. And then in this in this break, I mean, obviously there's nothing they can do about not playing football for two months, right? Because it's it's really not a good place to play football in, in November and December. And they all sort of go off to Portugal. But like, it, it does seem... Sort of faintly unfair, I guess, or or yeah. So we have this discussion semi regularly in the Nordic countries about uh, Denmark. At least they have kind of changed their schedule so that they do follow the normal European league structure a little bit. They do autumn to spring in terms of their championship, but they they do have to have this big break in the middle. For, for Norway and Sweden, I mean, we have summer leagues, and and we actually, I would argue, it's a double edged sword. You have an advantage in the qualifying stages when you're trying to qualify for the Champions League. Your teams are are in season, whereas the opponents are not. So at that point, that that can be an advantage for you, but. The, there, there's no getting around the fact that you you can't really you do. It's like I'm I'm in Stavanger now in Norway, and there's a bunch of snow outside. Like you can't, it, it doesn't work. Like get an orange ball. Yeah, what are you complaining about? It doesn't about? work. Like you have to you have to have the winter break, and that's always going to be a problem. One of the many problems the Scandinavian teams are always going to have at this stage, which is a sort of funny thing. We talk about. FC Copenhagen being underdogs in Europe because they are, but you got to remember, like within Denmark and within Scandinavia, the, they are the behemoth. You know, they can afford to to bring players straight, Moel Yunusi straight in from the Premier League. They can afford to hand some pretty reasonable contracts uh, to to players, and, and so it's a really sort of yeah. But but they just can't. Even them, they are the one Scandinavian team that has the budget to put together a team that could feasibly do okay in Europe, and they've been able to show some great stuff in the group stage. But you're always going to be at a disadvantage in the knockout stages, and even more so when you have to play Man City after two months out. I mean, that is not ideal. No, that first half, you could tell they were struggling so much to keep up with the tempo, and yeah, uh, first twenty minutes was was pretty brutal. Well, none of them were sick, so you know it wasn't like a preseason game at amateur level. <laughs> anyway, that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll do Real Madrid's win in Leipzig.
Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, so RB Leipzig nil Real Madrid one. No Jude Bellingham, Baz, but Brahim Diaz came in and scored a worldie. Yeah, uh, brilliant goal, cutting in from the right with a lovely turn, beat one man, then another. Uh, my old pal Zavi Simmons, uh, who's playing for Leipzig, and and rifled home and came close to making it a bit more comfortable for Real Madrid towards the end near, with a counter-attack. He sort of galloped upfield, uh, played the ball wide to Vinny Jr. And, and he, sort of a lovely little side, side foot with the outside of his right boot trying to place in the corner, but he, he hit the foot of the post. Um, so, yeah, he, he didn't look out of place at all, despite the big boots he was asked to fill. But Real Madrid didn't have it all their own way in this game. And I think... RB Leipzig would be very disappointed they didn't get at least a draw, if not beat them, because they they had, I wouldn't say they had a series of very good chances, but they certainly had, you know, eight or nine scorable chances. You would expect them to get, get a couple. Uh, I thought they were unfairly done out of a goal. That uh, Sesco header was ruled out for offside that would have put them one Yeah, I thought it was really harsh. I thought that was incredibly harsh. I spent all of the first half going, that shouldn't have been, because I was watching the other game, and I was like, can someone show me a replay? The guy is miles onside. What's happened? No, he was onside, but someone else was offside and deemed to be uh, interfering with the goalkeeper, uh, and I don't think he was. I I think it was a very, very harsh decision, uh, which would have made the game far more interesting. But um, yeah, it was a, a decent game, and that Sesco guy, Benjamin Sesco, he he had five or six chances. None of them brilliant chances, but you would have expected him to, to get one or two at least. Just on a technical point, Barry, when you said Vinny Jr. side-footed it with the outside of his boot to hit the post, it was a lovely effort. I appreciate that is the side of your foot, but I would never refer to that as a side am i the only one like the side foot for me has to be the inside of the foot the outside of the foot is just the outside of the foot yeah that's that's fair enough i'm I'm still traumatized from getting my west ham goalkeepers mixed up on (laughs) well i'm going to come to your defense on that later on Uh, yes Lars. well on that finish as well i'd be inclined to describe that as a poke even though it technically wasn't with the toe because he did the sort of poking motion with the legs outside side-footed poke crikey i'm I'm going to be have to be very careful about what i say in future (laughs) My every utterance is being forensically picked apart. <laughs> I'm just going to crumble and become a bag of nerves. <laughs> well, it's a good thing that never happens on this podcast with the very sort of tolerant and forgiving listenership that we uh, over the years. Um, I just think this was quite a fun game, I thought, in the second half. First half, not a lot happened, but after Real Madrid got that goal, it kind of opened up a little bit. And, and Leipzig were going forward. Lunin had to make some really smart saves. And then that opened up for Real Madrid on the counter. So we had a few, you know, quite thrilling uh, Vinicius Jr. runs. I was kind of second screening this and I found my eyes drawn towards the second screen quite a lot. And and it really is... Real Madrid, given that they had to play Nacho and Chouameni at at center half, given that there was no Bellingham, I, I think they'll be very, very happy to get out of this with the result that they did. But I thought take no... They could have really used Tramani in midfield but to, to stop uh, Leipzig a little bit more, but he did, a, maybe not a surprisingly, that's maybe a little bit condescending, but he did quite a good job as a defender, I thought, and bailed him out a few times. And and uh, Abi Leipzig, 
a couple of bad decisions and key moments, like Barry said, a couple of chances that were almost big chances, but one bad touch, one bad decision, this sort of thing all the time. So very, very frustrating from from their perspective. A decent game all around. While we're uh, being pedantic, are, are we second screening now? Is that a verb? I'm not sure I like that. Oh, I'm turning it into it. Uh, yeah. Well, I was thinking, I was third screening it, really, because I may have, although please don't tell anyone, been main screen, screening Portsmouth's uh, very lucky defeat of Cambridge United. Uh, um, but, you know, I was fully focused for some parts of this game. Um, it was quite feisty, Mark, wasn't it? Like, Danny Carvajal kicked someone, and then as far as I could see, every time I looked up, someone else was kicking or pushing Danny Carvajal. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, first screening um, this, right. this game, so I, I, was, I, was, I was watching it very closely. And uh, I mean, even if I wasn't, I would have known that Danny Carvajal would have been involved um, in anything that was kicking off. And he was determined to get a yellow card, it felt like, and was the main instigator uh, throughout the game, uh, really. I think... Uh, in, in terms of the match, I was surprised by how, how good Leipzig were. Um, you know, nine shots to three, uh, they won the shot on target count, and uh, Cheshko was um, a, a big threat, um, even though he didn't get his goal. And you know, Danny Olmo and uh, Simons, Appender, all all kind of lived up to their reputation, I suppose, as being players that are going to go on from Leipzig at some stage, uh, just like. And Kunku has uh, Shaboshlai, uh, Garvidal as well. So it is just um, you know the way it is for uh, Leipzig. Um, and I've forgotten what your question was, Max. Oh, it was a bit of a feisty game. It was, <laughs> yeah, it really was. Doesn't matter, it, it, Mark, it's it was. Fine. Um, and, and Vinicius loves to wind up that the crowd. Obviously, he's had um, some you know horrendous uh, racial um, abuse in Spain. Uh, this wasn't uh, racial abuse, but uh, he at one stage just refused to move back the 10 yards from um to allow Leipzig to take a corner and that that riled the the, the locals and he he seemed to do that for a, a good 30 40 seconds i think um so it, it was a feisty game and I, I think real madrid were slightly fortunate to get the uh, 1-0 win i agree with barry that 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 leipzig dislike goal was really unlucky but i don't know if lars or mark if you think well the guys sort of pushing very gently pushing the goalkeeper I, the goalkeeper's never going to get it I, it's a bit like those line of sight goals where you think well if the, if the player is in the line of sight of the keeper but there's no way the keeper's saving it that is different right there's no way the keeper's going to save this so i've got you'll be surprised to know it i've got the laws of the game open on my yeah, web man. browser here i mean i think the relevant bit in the law is that he's uh, interfering with an opponent by making an obvious action which clearly impacts the ability of the opponent to play the ball I, I, I think that's the one he gets done on because he's kind of stood right next to the goalkeeper and at one point pushes him and is kind of in his space. You can argue the toss away. Well, you, you can't actually argue the toss whether the goalkeeper would have been able to get to it because he clearly wouldn't have been. But I think when you're stood right next to him, you give him a little push, all this sort of stuff. You're clearly impacting his ability to, to do something. I think that's, yeah, that's how I they... I can't get. argue. But I've heard it's... I've heard someone suggest that the linesman gave it because he probably thought Cesco was offside, and then they checked the VAR and thought, "Oh, he he's not." But then, oh, look, this guy's offside. So it turns out it's okay. Like that that that's probably yeah. I'm I'm I'd be inclined to believe that that's possibly what happened. Uh, but but I think the final call is 
close enough to the scope of the rules of the game for it to not be a massive scandal. Everyone in Spain will be just nodding their heads because the whole season has been dominated by Real Madrid uh, supposedly getting the rub of the green and every 50-50 call um, in, in terms of referees this season. And uh, I think Javi said even a blind man can see um, what's going on earlier on in, in the campaign. So there'll be no shock um, outside of Madrid in Spain that um, maybe a 50-50 call went their way. Who am I to disagree with a man who is who continually second-screening the laws <laughs> of football? <laughs> not Yeah, not... not- outright wrong but quite jammy yeah. i think is how i would yeah. uh, would describe that uh, that call mark while we're on uh, real madrid that like they beat girona 4-0 at the weekend now five points clear at the top of the league is that is that is that it for girona now is that dream multi-club ownership dream uh dead in the water i think so uh, yeah uh you know five points is a lot to make up on the real madrid team it's only lost once i think in all competitions this season growing very much into the the campaign and we'll soon have Militao back, Courtois, uh, Rudiger was out of the, the the game against Leipzig. Bellingham's got a couple of weeks on the sideline. So that might impact them because he is very important to them, despite the fact that Brahim Diaz got the, that wonderful goal um, in, in Germany. But I would have thought that five points is too much for Girona um, to pull back and Barcelona um, not even in the picture, really. So, uh, and that let's go Madrid even further behind. So that that was a huge win in terms of them um, sort of um, claiming uh, the, the Spanish title. I would have thought, and um, for Girona, it's more about if they qualify, well, they will qualify for the Champions League, and that, uh, despite the multi-club ownership, is still, I think, uh, an absolutely remarkable tale. Really, Barry, you've already established uh, how uh, excited you are about the last sixteen. Are you frothing at the mouth at PSG Sociedad? I'm looking forward to it actually, um, because it's PSG and you, there's always a chance to mess it up. And I think everyone will be rooting for Real Sociedad. Sadly, Kieran Tierney won't be playing. He's on loan there. There's a brilliant interview uh, with him by Sid in, in the Guardian on the website. I would rec- recommend uh, seeking it out. He's having the time of his life over there. Absolutely having a ball. Loves it. And uh, it's always quite nice to see when a a player goes abroad. You know, he's obviously Scottish, but when a player goes abroad uh, from the Premier League and just has a wonderful, wonderful time. He he's played, I think, sixteen games for them, but his season's been in, uh, curtailed by two hamstring injuries, so he won't be playing tonight. But um, yeah, I. I I will be cautiously optimistic that Real Sociedad can be PSG because it is PSG and you know yeah. on their day they're capable of losing against anyone and it's very much you know this multi-million dollar or multi-billion uh, pound or euro state-owned behemoth against you know the the plucky little homegrown underdogs with, that's full of academy graduates I think there's 14 or 15 uh, academy graduates in the Real Sociedad first team squad so you love to see it do you think um, when Kirantini eventually goes back to the Premier League he'll be like when I got back from my gap year yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, I'll tell you it's what it sounds like actually he's on his gap year he was describing like the food he eats there clams and rice and how if he 
you know, when he tells the lads at home in Glasgow that he's been eating clams and rice, they all just mock him. <laughs> There's a very specific reason why I'm looking forward to this game and why, I, if you want to make a case for an upset, is that Real Sociedad are like the most aggressive, high-pressing team in, in La Liga. They're most press-tastic uh, team in the, in, in the Spanish league. And we know with uh, Luis Enrique's uh, PSG is that they are probably going to co- play out from the back and they're, they're not the best team in Europe at it. So I, I, I think there's a real sort of possibility. Listen, what could happen is Mbappe could just run away from everyone and score. I mean, that does seem to happen quite often. But I, but I could completely envisage PSG uh, getting caught and, and ending up on that sort of Twitter account when playing out from the back goes wrong. Oh, God, proper, proper football men will love that account weren't they um uh, Lazio Bayern um how do you see this one Mark still thinking about the clams and rice actually Max we're really making the belly <laughs> rumble um I, I think over the two legs Bayern will win um they they should do they're, they're considerably better than Lazio not having a, a great season in Syria uh, obviously they need to recover from the, the shock of just getting a real hiding by uh, Leverkusen on Saturday because the three nil score wasn't one of those games where um, you know you can get caught and and you know, dominate the game and, and you just end up losing it three nil. I think that the team is not functioning um, properly at the moment. That's on the coach Thomas Tuchel. He's under pressure, um, getting a lot of flat. He doesn't believe he's got the right balance to the team and has been moaning about that throughout the season and they are easy to counter-attack on but I just don't see sort of Lazio last season when they had Milinkovic-Savic he was somebody that could make those runs from deep and um, was a huge player for them they're just not the same team um, this year and maybe one of those reasons why the um, Champions League isn't as strong as what it sort of traditionally is is because you know Lazio are not one of the best four teams in Italy this season so uh, it should be comfortable enough over the two legs for Bayern briefly gone back to the clams and rice is he talking about paella you'd normally have more than just clams in sort of a, a sort of paella mm. 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 yeah calamari a lot of squid oh. I think now I'm hungry who was it was it somebody famous or just a friend of mine who thought that calamari swam in the sea with like little circles that swam around in the sea <laughs> and that's what they were i don't remember i, I know uh, kick kick and trippier re- referred to he didn't realize that he thought that uh, tapas meant spanish food rather than little dishes and oh. referred um, and referred to well, yeah when he went to, to spain he didn't realize that um, you know, you can have little dishes of, of anything, really, and that's what happens. According to delicious.com, uh, there is a recipe for Spanish clams and rice, so uh, a separate mm. dish from paella. Uh, anyway, that'll do for part two. Part three, the more prosaic Selhurst Park defeat for Crystal Palace against Chelsea. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Michael says, should Conor Gallagher have apologised for scoring against his old club? I do seem to recall that he scored a last-minute winner for Chelsea at Palace and he didn't celebrate the last time, but maybe he's been away from Palace for long enough or he'd forgotten he spent a while at Palace on loan and he did celebrate. He really celebrated what was basically the winner, um, the second goal. And boy, Barry, did they need that second half, Chelsea. Oh, yeah. I was I was watching this game and I, I was laughing at how inept Chelsea were in the first half. It was staggering. Just 
passes under hit, over hit. Pointing and pointing and laughing. <laughs> sort of like, like a bondy bond baddie laughing. Just the levels of ineptitude they plumbed after that excellent performance against Villa. And they were playing a palace team who'd just been humiliated by Brighton. No Michael Elise, no Ibrich, Eza, and no Mark Gehi for Palace in this game. So you'd think they're going to get hammered here. That They've no chance. And, you know, Chelsea did have the, all the ball in the first half, but just couldn't do anything with it. And then they went behind to this uh, superb goal from Jefferson Lerma. And you're thinking, oh, hold on. But uh, their superiority showed in the end, I suppose. And, and But they left it late. Hmm. Peter Cech on Monday Night Football said that um, uh, Petrovic should have stopped the Jefferson Lerma goal. I mean, I don't, it was sort of it just suddenly real thinking, I mean, that just seems very, very harsh, doesn't it? And maybe Peter Cech was just like, I could save everything. Um, you know, I, I thought that was I thought that was quite funny. Pressure. There is pressure on Roy Hodgson, isn't there, Mark? And. You know, they, by all accounts, you know, um, Ed Aaron's writing in The Guardian that they've been trying to get Kieran McKenna from Ipswich. I mean, that can't help. He obviously has been in the game long enough to know that he is under serious pressure. And it, it was Stephen Grant, Brighton comedian, was on the radio with me and Charlie saying, you know, that, that Palace, Palace's, uh, you know, their their banners, their angry banners are so long. They're like, we're really disappointed with everything that is happening. You know, there's not been enough funding. We haven't really thought this through. <laughs> Roy Hodgson was, okay, just, it was a stopgap. And now we really should be thinking about this. This is just absolutely enormous. But um, he's under real pressure, Roy. And it's interesting to see what Palace will do. I mean, I don't mean he should have ever been a, appointed or reappointed when he was it worked up until a point because he managed to keep them in the Premier League I don't think they were going to get relegated anyway but um, he he did make sure of of survival but it was always likely to be a short-term solution and you mentioned Brighton there I think the fact that their kind of rivals play such daring football have got a clear policy on, on what they want to be and you know in terms of transfer market and style of play that definitely doesn't help when you're sort of looking uh I was gonna say up the road it's quite a long way up the road isn't it from Palace to, to Brighton but you, you know what I mean from that, that point of view um and there, there doesn't appear to be a plan at Crystal Palace for kind of like what kind of coach they want and the, the, the type of team they want to be. I think some of their transfers in terms of who they brought in from the EFL have, have been very good, but it's about having a, a bigger picture and, and a bigger plan. And, you know, they were always likely to struggle without the players that you'd already mentioned in that game against Chelsea. But style of play is difficult, really difficult to watch. And I was main screening this game and then mm. I just got so bored in that first half as... Barry was talking about. I sort of felt like I was nodding off, and uh, the commentator woke me up when he screamed um, that for, for, for the Jefferson Lerma <laughs> goal. But, uh, but but I don't think Palace were going to, to score in any other way, really. Um, and you know, once Chelsea t- took the game seriously and, and started to to think about scoring goals rather than just keeping the ball, they, they were able to win the game. I mean, in Palace go to Everton on Monday now, which is. A real treat for those of us who saw their two games in the third round of the cup and went, yes, more please. <laughs> I thought Adam Wharton looked good, though. You know, mentioned signing from the AFL. He looks like a, a, a tidy player. And if they have all their players fit, you know, next season, presuming in the Premier League and they have a new manager, they, it, you know, it could all change pretty quickly, I, I guess. Um, the, uh, 
The referee's comms went down at half-time, caused quite a bit of a delay. Um, I don't think there's a conspiracy theory, but I do. I feel I spend a lot of time watching an official, like, unstrapping, like, something on his bicep and re-strap. It just feels like, it feels like I spend a lot of time doing that. There's no question or no point to this, but... It's just something we just think, oh, could you just get on with it? It's a bit like standing behind someone at a cash point. Not that you do that anymore. <laughs> Ages me, you know, going, fuck, this is taking forever. Um, anyway, uh, British billionaire Sir Jim Ratcliffe, uh, his deal to buy a quarter of Manchester United has been approved by the Premier League. Well done, Jim. Uh, it's worth uh, £1.03 billion. Uh, it's still subject to FA approval. Um, the Glazers will retain a majority stake in the club, uh, but uh, Ineos Group, uh, Ratcliffe's Ineos Group, will take control of football operations. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we'll see what happens with all of that and the gains, however marginal or not that they are. Um, in the EFL, um, uh, Mansfield beat Harrogate 9-2. And we celebrate that because scoring nine goals is quite something. I've ranked the goals in order of quality. The eighth, the third, the second, the sixth, the fifth, the fourth, the seventh, the ninth, then the first. Because that was a penalty. Uh, but I did watch all of them. The absolute highlight of this game was the Harrogate player grabbing the ball out of the net to rush back to the centre circle at 6-2. They are still in. They scored two quite... Quite quick success. Dangerous lead, sixteen. <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? But the Harrogate fans were really going for it. Yes, uh, did you see Nigel Plus comments afterwards where he he claimed uh, that Mansfield would have beaten most teams in the world on on the night, which uh, <laughs> <laughs> which given Manchester City were were dominating a Champions League game at the same time. He he also referenced the, the celebrating. Do you remember earlier mm. on this season, Nigel Clough? Um, was uh, was ordering his players not to celebrate too wildly after scoring goals because they would tire them themselves out, and he wanted them to to save their energy. So it, it was he was he was he kind of could see this coming, and um, yeah, he he just didn't want the the, the players to to go too um, you know too wild, otherwise they might have only won six or, or five. Yeah, was it was it just Pat Pathé news handshakes all around and jog back to the <laughs> yeah, centre circle. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe they could have beaten Man City if Man City were also playing Copenhagen at the same time. I mean, that is possible. Yeah, Hiram Boateng got a hat-trick. He's a holding midfielder. I mean, he was great for us when we went up from, from League Two. Um, in the Championship, Leeds won 4-0 at Swansea. Couple for Willie Nonto. Matt says Leeds, uh, since New Year's Day, have scored 25, conceded two maximum points. In any other season, they'd be topped by a mile. Danny says, how do you think the Leeds squad will cope in two years when we qualify for the Champions League? And they overtake Southampton, whose unbeaten run is over. They hadn't lost since September. They lost 3-1 at Bristol City. Leicester are 12 points clear at the top. Uh, beat Sheffield Wednesday 2-0. Uh, stately home, Kieran Dewsbury Hall, with a delightful <laughs> assist for Jamie Vardy. Um, uh, who wants to talk about the ridiculous Rabona um, by, is it, uh, what's his name? Is it Philogene? How do I pronounce this man? Philogene. Yeah, so uh, Philogene is he's dribbling um, to, to the, the byline, cuts back in, um, is then at a very difficult angle um, and rather than do the traditional thing at that point and just cross the ball normally with his left foot, he goes for the Rabona, uh, which floats in over the goalkeeper, at least at first view, um, and sort of finds the top corner. And you, you, you're thinking we found the Puskas um, sort of goal of the year um, winner. Um, scandalously, though, um, there is a deflection and it's 
been given as an own goal because um, it, it maybe wasn't on target. I mean, who, who are we to know whether there was yeah. enough curl on the Rabona for it to, to have bent in um, anyway? But um, yeah, I, as good an own goal in, in a different type of way. I mean, we all love the, the Lee Dixon sort of lobbing, um, the, the goalkeeper from the halfway line sort of style of own goal. But um, yeah, what, what one of the best own goals in a, in a different kind of way. Mm, and credit to Charlie Baker for saying fans should sing Philogene is not my lover. It really does scan, doesn't it? Yes, Lars? I, I feel like this is where we need an appeals system to the dubious goals panel. There should be... The dubious goals panels... When they get involved, it should be possible to appeal on aesthetical grounds, I think, for this sort of thing. There should be a second mm. circuit. Like the dubious goals panels, it, it has ruled, but you can appeal on grounds of aesthetics and then there should be a separate uh, panel, which could involve, I guess, some some fans and minor celebrities and talking heads from these sort of things and who can decide. Surely scores of great goals. It should be Latisse and Gianfranco Zola. I'm just uh, not inclined and, to and, give and, <laughs> and, and and surge from Kasabian. Should I'm be just the not. Three who, I'm, just wor- I'm just really worried about what the panel would come up to if you sort of bring Latisse in. I mean, they give me all kinds, of, all kinds of weird shit could come out of that panel. <laughs> um, uh, I don't, we will do another EFL pod soon. Producer Joel won't sanction it until Charlton win, and they haven't won in 14. So. It might be a long time. He's terrified of Charlton in League Two, which they haven't been in the fourth tier since the 30s, apparently. You can't rattle around in a 30,000 capacity in League Two, but you're never too big or too good to go down. Barry, you wanted to uh, do a little bit about Sunderland Till I Die. Series three. Yeah, series three. The third and final series of this great documentary is out. And it's probably the weakest of the three, I'd say. It's only three episodes long. It begins halfway through the season when they get promoted from League One back to the Championship after four years in League One. And I think that kind of takes away from it a bit because, you know, who wants to see success? (laughs) Abject failure is, is always more interesting to watch. And I think it also loses out a bit, not really through any fault of the makers. They've still done a fine job. But uh, in previous series we've had you know Stuart Bain who was the the David Brent of chief executives and then with Charlie Methven this um, public schoolboy idiot in his burgundy trousers telling everyone that the piss take party stops now and telling all the staff (laughs) at the stadium light how incompetent they all are when it turns out he's more him and Stuart Donald are are more incompetent than any of them um (laughs) But, yeah, I, I enjoyed this. Uh, but Kira Louis-Dreyfus is, is in charge now, the 20-something billionaire, and he's quite dull and far too competent to be the star of this show, you know. So <laughs> we're relying on on the old faces, the fans who, who've made it so good over the years. Peter Farrar, the cabbie. Oh, he's wonderful. Uh, Michelle Barraclough and Ian Wake. Yeah, there's 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 no jeopardy in this because you know obviously they're going to get promoted, but I did enjoy it. Uh, and even though they do get promoted, and it's only three episodes long, it still manages to have an ending that will reduce you to tears—an absolute gut punch. Uh, so anyone who's seen the first two series, you've got to watch this one. Just see it out. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me nothing is going to continue a piss take party more than someone 
announcing to you that the <laughs> stops here. <laughs> it feels, feels incredibly counterintuitive. Yeah. I want a man in red trousers <laughs> spunking millions on Will yeah, Grigg, yeah. frankly. Um, but you're right, Pete the cabbie. I, I feel like I've given it a bad review, and it's, it's not bad, but it's just not as good as the previous two for for the reasons I've kind Double of brilliant. outlined. And I think uh, mm. Welcome to Wrexham's really taken over in the football documentary stakes hasn't it yeah i haven't got to that yet i must confess um i i really once i saw the the, the um you know the the tottenham team talks i just thought this can't be this can't be all there is come on lads let's fucking smash them i mean i've heard that i've delivered that i, just, I want more from these guys so much footage um, of of men's in trainers sort of arriving at the training ground high-fiving people there's just, just hours and hours of this i i kind of struggle with these documentaries i'm sure i i don't know maybe it's because so much of of my time is spent watching actual football when i sit down and watch like something like that i want it to be not football related but there're just so many of them are just inane and not a lot of fun i do want it from their success i'm sure the rexham one is different just based on the sheer number of people watching it there has to be something good there sorry but the absolute highlight of the third series of uh, sunderland till i die is when jack clark and patrick roberts go to visit the east durham veterans association uh, and help out in the kitchen and chat to these guys, you know, many of whom are suffered or have suffered from PTSD. And it's just this group of hairy old men who, who gather once a week just to chat and exchange old war stories and support each other. And at one point, Jack Clark is standing there having a conversation about kind of mental health with this big beardy middle-aged man who's wearing a gimp fist t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and all you can see is just gimp fist. Gimp, what? So I had to Google gimp fist. So it turns out they're a, a punk band from the Northeast. Ah, so, well, um, I see. Yeah. When you've watched Sunderland Till I Die, be sure to seek out gimp fist's uh, back catalogue and, and give it a listen. Yeah. If they enjoy the pod, you never know. They might... They might re-recorded the outro for us I'd like to be played onto stage for a live show by Gimp Fist um, uh, Joe says uh, regarding the last pod and Barry's comments on West Ham's Fabianski being the only player who came out of the Arsenal game with some credit was this because he was on the bench for the full 90 Mark just listen to the pod Barry was bang on about Fabianski being the only player to come out of the Arsenal mauling with any credit as he didn't play same also applies to Julian Dixon Billy Bond Steve I love it when talking about the positives from West Ham Barry said Fabianski made some good saves he didn't play a minute gold, he says. I mean, it's on all of us. I mean, I, I was listening to you and it got past me. It got past producer Joel. I'd like to, I'd like to um, come to your defence here, Barry. Oh, thank you. Even though Lucas Fabianski and Alphonse Arioli look nothing alike. Uh, are, there's about a decade between them um, and they're entirely different people. There is something... There is something quite similar about both of them. And they, and it feels like they've both been West Ham's first choice keeper for about five years. And I feel that, you know, it's not like... If you think about Vicario and Fraser Forster or Alisson and, and Kelleher, right? There should be a discernible, like a real noticeable difference. <laughs> but I think, I think most people, unless they had a close-up, I think most people didn't notice... And I think it's very. I think you can't be expected to differentiate between West Ham goalkeepers. I, I, I give you full forgiveness. I, I would argue, Max, that if you're podding at the highest elite level, 
you probably should be able to differentiate <laughs> between West Ham goalkeepers. Maybe. Can I say I was I was slightly offended by the fact I didn't think Ariola had played that well either. Um, really, so I mean, I, was, uh, I mean, I wasn't sure he deserved. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, he deserved Fabianski's credit. Really, I thought he was um, as average as well as bad as the rest of them. I mean, the, the real truth is now I really will notice who is in goal for West Ham. So, in fact, you've done everybody a favour because no one will get it wrong for the rest of the season. I'm sure. Well, it's like that that feature we did in in our uh, football weekly book. Uh, who's Vestergaard and Bednarek? Jan, yeah, yeah, Yannick Vestergaard and Jan Bednarek. How no one can tell them apart, even yeah. though they're completely different people who look nothing alike. Yeah, but their names are slightly similar, you know. And they're all they're right, you know. I mean, they might be at different clubs now. Who knows? I'm going Leicester and Southampton, but I couldn't tell you who's at which one. Uh, <laughs> let's not go down that path again. Um, uh, heaven forbid we repeat a joke. Ellis says, which of the panel is best qualified to be super sub for David Squires while he goes through the process of getting over his injury, getting back to match fitness? Guardian Sport cannot play with 10 men. Uh, get well soon. Yeah, our best wishes to David Squires, um, uh, who who tweeted, look, no cartoon this week, I'm afraid. On Sunday morning on an otherwise uneventful dog walk, I became a walking chew toy for a stray staffy who had taken umbrage to the existence of one of my small dogs. I got in between them and came off worse for wear. If it hadn't been for the help of three blokes who came to my aid, I don't think I'd be typing this. In time, I'll be able to take more enjoyment from the fact that the man who saved me is an Australian called Bluey, uh, which for uh, parents of young children, uh, they will find very amusing. I needed surgery on my upper arm. My drawing hand is fine. Suck it, haters, he says. Uh, I need a few days on the sideline. My little dog is fine as well. Look, I chatted to him today. It sounded pretty fucking full on, actually. Excuse my language. Um, and yeah, he's pretty shaken up. But like, if, if there is anything lucky about being attacked by a, a violent dog when you're a cartoonist, it's that his writing hand is fine and his drawing hand rather is fine. And that is a stroke of luck for all of us because the guy, uh, I, I wouldn't say to his face, is an absolute genius. And so uh, thankfully uh, he is okay and he'll be doing cartoons again. Jim says, finally, uh, what did you have in your pancakes? I imagine Mark's resembled an American breakfast stack. Did you pancake, Mark? Did you, you know, what was it? Well, pancaking's a verb now too, isn't it? (laughs) Pancaking, it was a second. I think it's something from the urban, it's something from the urban dictionary, Barry, I'm almost certain. Anyway, yes, Mark? I I second plated with a, uh, with with, with pancakes after um, dinner. It, it was, yeah, it, it wasn't American, yeah, but maple, well, Canadian, North American, uh, maple syrup um, on, on the pancakes. And um, I won't be giving up anything for, for Lent, um, though, Max, although maybe Gimp Fist. I might give up Gimp Fist for, for Lent. <laughs> gimp Fisting, that could um, be a uh, verb too. <laughs> that would definitely be Christ. in the urban dictionary. I'm sure it is. Anyway. From um, from up to Joe, Darren Peacock is the only player whose name contains every letter in the word pancake to have made a Premier League appearance on Shrove Tuesday, doing so in 1995 for Newcastle United. Um, thank you very much. That is a statistic that I like, and that will do for today. Um, uh, thank you, Lars. Thank you, Max. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Max. Cheers, Baz. Ta. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.